All right, we're going to begin this morning in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis, the second chapter. And in Genesis 2, I would like to begin in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 2. Here's what it says. Then the Lord God took the man and put him there into the Garden of Eden in order to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said that it is not good for the man to be alone. And so I will make him a helper who is suitable for him. The word of the Lord. Uh, the following that I'm about to read is an excerpt from an article written um, long ago. I'm going to 1955 um, edition of Housekeeping Monthly Magazine. It's called The Good Wife's Guide, where it details all the ways that a woman ought to act in a household, where it lists all of her proper etiquettes for her role as a woman in the home. And so this article begins with this. It says, before your husband gets home from work, have dinner ready. Plan ahead, even the night before, so that he can have a delicious home-cooked meal, ready and on time amen. for his return. Let all the men say amen, right? <laughs> Secondly, it says prepare yourself. Rest for 15 minutes just before he gets home. Touch up all of your hair and your makeup. Have a ribbon in your hair and be fresh looking for when he arrives. Clear away all of the clutter in the house. Make one last trip just before he, he comes home. Light a fire for him to unwind by. And I love this. It says, after all, catering for his comfort will provide you a sense of satisfaction. <laughs> and then it goes on and it says, here is my, um, the one that I enjoy the most. You may have a dozen concerns, but the moment of his arrival is not the time for those concerns to be voiced. Let him talk. Because remember, his topics of conversation are more important than yours. Make the evening his and only his. Do not complain if he's home late for dinner or even if he stays out all night long from home. Remember, he is the master of the house and as such will always exercise his will with fairness and truthfulness. And then it punctuates with these two sentences, you have no right to question your husband. Because after all, a good wife knows her place. How are all you ladies feeling about that so far? I mean, it's just heaven on earth for you, right? I mean, and there, there are some women who have been housewives, and there, there is some merit to that, some. Don't beat me with your shoes. Some merit to that. <laughs> but the problem with this article is that it's not really a matter of it's good to elevate our spouse above ourselves, which we all should. That is good. We need to do that. But the problem with this article, at least as I read it, is that it seems very much one-sided, doesn't it? <laughs> now I'm really preaching. I mean, it says... Let him talk. But you, 
If you're a woman, you need to just shut your mouth. Because his conversation is vastly more valuable and important than, than yours. You need to make the evening his every single night of the year. As it says, after all, a good wife knows what her place is. And when we read an article about this, it's really all about the man, isn't it? You know, he's got a nine-to-five job at the factory, and so that makes him a demigod in the home. And my generation reads something like this, and we can see the merit in it. But what we really see is a form of soft-core slavery. We read something like this, and the woman comes out being nothing but his glorified ownership and his property. Whether that is true or it is not true, necessarily. We know what, what the perception of women has been for a very long time in this world and in this country. It seems like the perception of women is that women are important, don't get us wrong. But they're not exactly as important as men are. That women are very special, and yet the perception is women are not quite as special as men are. Women are adept at certain things, but only adept at being, at being the subservient maidservants to, to men. We can let them have jobs, we can let them earn wages, but as long as they're not making quite as much as the men are for the same or the comparable work, then that will be just fine. It seems like in the world, women in society have a role, and that is to make our babies, right? That they have a place in this world, and, and that place is in the kitchen. And by the way, ladies, these shirts of ours, they're not going to iron their, their own selves. <laughs> and it just seems like that has been our perception of women for a very long time in this world. And until just months ago with this Me Too movement, it seems like changes are finally starting to come to fruition for women about the ways... That, that women have been treated for so long, being just walked all over, used as objects of gratification for men. And rightfully so, that is beginning to um, change and to really come to our awareness in this world. Long overdue. But it seems like in this world, it's just all about the man, though. Again, her, you know, she has concerns, but she's not allowed to ever voice what those concerns are because every single night is just all about her husband. And that's because his is the only voice that really matters. She really only exists so that she can cater to her husband's every single conceivable whim. And the problem with this is that this, this more or less has been the philosophy of women in the church for a very long time. Now there are many Christian men in the church who will look at a passage just like this in Genesis chapter 2 and say, you know, where God says that it is not good for man to be alone, so I'm going to make him a helper who will be suitable for him. And there are many men who will say, well, see, that's exactly what women are. They are our, our um, hired and divine help who comes from God. They are the ones who are going to iron our shirts whenever we need those shirts to be ironed. They are the ones who are going to cook our meals and so forth. You see, she is not our equal, but she is a lesser than. We are up here, and women are way down here on the food chain. 
And that's just the way it is, many people think. There are many others in the church who will say, well, it's especially true because just one chapter later, chapter 3, after Adam and Eve have sinned in the garden, God says that, that I'm going to greatly multiply all of your pains in childbirth. And your husband is going to rule over you. And there's a lot of men in the church who I've known throughout my, my life who, who view that in a sense that, that she is working for me. I'm not working for her. She is always working for me around the clock. It seems like most of what we hear about women in the church is that they should be silent. And there are places in Scripture where, where it says women are to be silent, that, that even it is a, a shame for a woman to speak in church. That's in Scripture. Now, I don't have the time to unpack those specific verses here this morning, but next week, next week I would like to take a look at all of those passages that mention women needing to be silent in the church. But what I want to do next week is I want to take a very unusual look at those passages. I want to take a very brave and courageous look at those passages because I believe that something else is going on behind the scenes. And so next week, we will look at those specific passages. But as for this week, women, it seems, have so often been been very much minimized in the church and in the world, shoved over here, far off in a corner, viewed as if they are inferior. This has been the perception, the reception. This has been the interpretation, and this has been our tradition and our tribe in the churches of Christ. Where I don't think that we even want to have this attitude necessarily, but it just seems like there is just this smack of God's church really is a man's world. Ministry is a boy's club. You know, it reminds me a little bit of a long time ago had the little rascals on. They had a group of boys, little boys, who were in this group called the He-Man Woman Haters Club. Anybody remember them? <laughs> and that's cute when you're six or seven years old. And yet I have a feeling that there are many men in the church whose outlook on women is in desperate need of maturity and of becoming adults in Christ. And yet the greatest proof of all that, that women have been minimized, at least in my world, is that I realized just last week that this is the first time, the whole time that I've been doing this, almost 20 years of my life, this is the first time that I have ever taught about women in the church. And that breaks my heart because women are, are so important. You see, our perception is women are very valuable in the church, but they're not exactly as valuable as the men are. They, they are spiritual, but they're not exactly as spiritual as us, the men. Women have a place in the church, and guess where it is, ladies? It's in the kitchen, it's in the nursery, because women are better seen but not heard from. Because after all, a good Christian woman knows her place, as we remember what that article had said. That has been our perception, it seems. And yet, a very close and deliberate look into Scripture will convince us that that simply is not true. 
That simply is not true because the greatest ministers that I have ever known of in my entire life were women. The absolute most Christ-like people who we read about in the Scriptures were our sisters in Christ. Now if we come to the book of, of Matthew in chapter 27, Jesus is on the cross. Jesus has just given up his life on the cross. Given up his spirit on the cross. And in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 54, I want us to really notice what is happening here. In return, um, really in terms of women and Jesus. Matthew chapter 27, starting in the latter part of verse 54, Jesus again has just died on the cross. And a Roman guard marvels at Jesus, looking up at him, saying, truly this was the Son of God. And then verse 55, notice this. It says that many women were there looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee. Wow. What's that word? Ministering to Jesus. These women have been ministering to Jesus. And now, what this word minister means in the original language, it means that, that I sit at a table and I wait for another person. It means that, that I'm caring for the needs of another person. I am elevating their needs above my very own needs. And where this really gets interesting is that this is the exact same word for a deacon later on in the church. And now, of course, what a deacon is, it is that, that imagery in the Greek where, where, where one is so busy at work for God that they are leaving a trail of smoke and dust behind them. And I mean, these girls at the cross, they are kicking up dust for their Lord. And for anybody who would say, well, well, of course, they would sit at a table and wait for another person. Of course, they would elevate needs of others above themselves, their women. But let me remind us that what this says here, this is exactly what the heart and the mind of Jesus Christ is. As we read elsewhere in Scripture, do nothing from emptiness or vacancy, but, but rather consider the needs of others as being far more important than your very own. And then it says after that, let this mind be in you, which was also in the mind of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, this is so significant because while the men, while the apostles have been so busy jockeying for position, arguing about which one of us is the greatest, arguing about which one of us is going to have the most eminence in this kingdom, these women have been, have been living and embodying the very essence of Christianity all this time. And they've been doing it in a way that makes it look like it's coming natural to them. Jesus never had to, to sit a bunch of women down and educate them about the importance of serving others above them, them themselves. It's the men who Jesus has to do this to. Jesus has to sit down a bunch of men, a bunch of ministers, preachers, and introduce them to this new world of serving others above your own self. And it's also interesting that, that while the men, while the apostles have been so busy treating Jesus in a way, as they start betraying Jesus, start denying Jesus, abandoning Jesus in Gethsemane. Meanwhile, these women have been faithful to Jesus all the way to his final breath on the cross. 
These women have been faithful until the very end. And then three days later, early on in the morning, it's the women who are the very first ones to that tomb. They are the first ones who are there. And the first human proclaimers of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it was not the apostles. It was those women who had reached that tomb first. You see, long before Peter and the rest of the apostles could proclaim the risen Jesus on the day of Pentecost, they first had to learn this from a bunch of women. You see, there is a magnitude, a sheer importance to godly women in this world. And the most powerful theologians that, that, that we will ever read about aren't just the boys, but they're also the girls. How in the book of Acts we are introduced to an incredible man whose name is Apollos. And Apollos, we are told, is a man who's very eloquent. He's been very much educated in the world in terms of his religious upbringing. He is a man who is mighty in the scriptures. I mean, this guy is Billy Graham before Billy Graham. And yet, what do we know about Apollos? He knew a lot about the scriptures, but his theology needed a woman's touch. Because as we're told, Aquila and his wife come. Her name is Priscilla. And what's interesting in that chapter is, is that it mentions the wife first, which was completely unheard of there in that time and in that culture. And what we believe is the reasoning behind that is because his wife Priscilla was so mature spiritually that, that he had to mention her first in terms of who was the most mature in Christ. And it says that Aquila and his wife Priscilla pull Apollos aside, this, this great order, this, this great preacher of Christ. And they, notice, they explain the way of God more accurately to Billy Graham before Billy Graham came. And as I look at my life, this has been the exact same case. I mean, I sat at the feet of some of the wisest, most legendary theologians that the American church will ever know. From childhood, I have heard some of the most renowned orders who will ever live. And yet the deepest, most brilliant learning that I have ever undergone, it did not come from the seminary professor. It did not come from the keynote luminary. But rather it came from the sage tutelage of blue-haired widows whose quiet knowledge of the scriptures far surpassed my own. It came from women who were recovering meth addicts, who once had worked as prostitutes, once upon a time, but now whose worship wept in gratitude to God with arms lifted to the sky. It was, the, it was those special, precious, gentle women, women like Kate Thompson and Dolores Jacobs, Brenda Bradshaw, Dorothy Wrench, Juanita Rayburn, just to name a few, who taught me from the crib to love Jesus Christ more than anything and more than anyone in this world. As I look back on my life, my, my earliest memories in life were my mom's gentle, sweet, and angelic voice lulling me to sleep with many hymns of praise Songs like, I know the Lord will find a way for me. 
Psalms like, I know who I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. What was my mom doing night after night after night? She was sowing precious seeds inside my mind about Jesus. She was ministering to me even before I was capable of ever speaking. There is no one who is depicting God's kingdom or Christ's character more vividly, more beautifully, and more masterfully than our sisters in Christ. And, and in fact, we, we even hear about another young, young evangelist in Scripture, like myself, Timothy, where one place it says this, it says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, Notice, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois, and then in your mother Eunice. And I am sure that is in you as well, it says. And so long before Timothy ever came about, there had to be women who were sowing those seeds and ministering to him as he grew up and as he grew strong. And some of the most Christ-like people who have ever lived, again, it's our sisters in Christ. I think about a woman who we read about in Acts, whose name is Dorcas, who is described to us specifically as a disciple. It says in the text that there was a disciple whose name was Dorcas, and she was abounding in loving acts in that church, doing them all of the time. For so many years, I used to only attribute that word of a disciple to Peter, James, and John, and all the rest of the apostles, but in fact, there were many women followers of Christ, and and students of Jesus and disciples. Romans chapter 16, Paul is listing people who were especially spiritual and exemplary in that region, in the church. And the very first person who he starts with is a sister in Christ. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant at the church. And he lists many other women there as well. My question is, are we noticing a pattern here? Are we seeing just how important the magnitude of women in the church really is? It's not that women are inferior to men in the church or in the world itself. It's not that they are, are, are lesser than us. But rather what we're seeing here is that us men, we really, really need women. Because this world, this church, it needs a woman's touch. Now, if we go back to our text for just a moment, that, that word helper, as God says, that, that I will create for the man a helper, that word helper does not mean inferior or slave to the man. But rather what this is, is the Hebrew word azer kenegdo. Now, what azer kenegdo means is that it is a word which, which only elsewhere describes God coming to the rescue coming to the aid of the Israelites. That's how strong that word is. That word azer kenegdo is more or less a military word, a word of great power and of great might. And the best explanation that I've ever heard for helper or for azer kenegdo is this, is that God designed women not as man's maids, nor as society's doormen. But rather, God made and designed women that they might be shields, that they might be warriors, that they might be 
their husband's protector. And when the appropriate time comes, they must also confront that man of theirs. Now I think all the ladies here was, might be thinking, I can get down for that. That's because there comes a time where a wife must come to the rescue of her husband by breaking her foot off of his rear end. I saw a t-shirt once upon a time that said that I had some words with my wife. My wife had some chapters with me. And I know every man in here knows what that's all about. Hazer Conegdo is what that is. I saw a meme last week on social media of, of um, a couple of birds. One has its beak shut, the other has its beak about this far out, and it says, I don't know much about birds, but I know which one is the husband. <laughs> that's not necessarily a bad thing. She is his Azer Conegdo. She is doing her job in that picture, isn't she? I mean, it's true like this even in the animal kingdom. I mean, let's view it this way. A male bear, a papa bear, is all big and bad and all that. But you do not want to mess with mama bear, do you? You want no part of mama bear when her cub is around. If you do, you're going to wind up on an Animal Kingdom special or something. It's true in politics. In 1863, when Ulysses S. Grant was, was the vice president to Abraham Lincoln, I read this quote just the other day. That the cabinet meeting drags on one afternoon in Washington. One o'clock rolls on, 1.30 comes and it goes, and then a messenger arrives carrying with him a note. It's for Grant. It's from his wife, Julia, and she is not happy. Mrs. Grant wants her husband back at the Willard Hotel immediately so that they can catch the six o'clock train to New Jersey. And then this. General Grant's decision has now been made for him. After months and years of soldiers reverently and fearfully obeying his every order, Ulysses S. Grant now bows to an even greater authority than the President of the United States of America, his wife. His wife. Women are warriors. They are warriors to warriors. I went to school with this guy whose name is Richard Hartman, and he was a, um, I believe he was, was a sergeant in the Marine Corps. This guy, you know, his, his motto, his philosophy in Iraq was shoot first and ask questions later. I mean, he defended our country in so many courageous ways, foot patrols and Fallujah, I mean, you name it, firefights, you know, Humvee rollovers, I mean, you name it. But when I asked him about when the time came for cutesy family pictures with the babies to be taken, I asked him how that went over with him. And he told me that I did what my wife told me to do because even I am not that crazy. That guy gets it. That guy understands that his wife is not a doormat, is not a lesser than, but she is his warrior, his Azer Conegdo. As I look at my wife, I see so much more than just merely a wife who is wearing my ring and who has my name, but 
I see a teammate. Here's a girl who has dropped everything in her life, family, friends, so that she can go to all kinds of foreign fields with me. And she has seen me at my absolute best, maybe two or three times in her entire life. <laughs> and yet the grand majority of the time she has seen me at, at my absolute most grotesque worst. I mean, 12 years this girl has been working on me. And I still have such a long way to go. And yet there have been so many times though where, where if I did not have her in my life as my best friend, as my teammate in life and in ministry, I mean, I would not be here this morning. And that's because God did not give me a doormat. God gave me a warrior, an equal. He gave me an Azer connector. I was on the phone the other day with, with our brother Wayne. His voice was unrecognizable with sorrow because as soon as he answered the phone, he was already crying, weeping hard. That's because um, his wife Nadine is in the hospital as we know. I mean, he has every right to be sad because that's his Azer Kanig. That is his warrior in this life. One minister named, named Brad Nelson, he says it like this. He says, men, men, we cannot be who we, we have been called to be in Christ without the wisdom, the authority, the leadership or the assistance of our sisters in Christ. This is how God has designed this world. And we need them. And we need every syllable of their voices. You see, this is the reason why we refer to our wives as what? As, as our greater halves. And that's because as the old axiom says, behind every good man, you will find a great woman. Behind every decent preacher, you will find an extraordinary woman, a spectacular minister, a spectacular Christian. Behind every wonderful elder, you will find a marvelous elder's wife standing by his side every difficult step of the way. When God looked at Adam in the garden, when God looked at our world at large, when God looked ahead and he scanned through time and he saw his church someday, he said that it is not good for man to be alone. And so Adam and, and every man in this world, and the world itself, and the church itself, it's okay, but the only thing that is not good in this world and in this universe that I am creating, God says, is that it is not good for man to be alone. It needs a woman's touch. And so now as we bring this to a close this morning, I want to ask us and I want to challenge us with this question. How can we embrace God's intended role for women in this world and in his church? First, I would like to address our brothers in Christ. And to our fellow brothers, if we want to, to learn what it means to really have the heart of Christ, I think one of the greatest ways that we can do this and accomplish this is just watch the women in this church. Watch and notice and note how the women in this church serve. I mean, I was hardly 
in the door this morning. And I saw women kicking up dust all over this building. I saw Lori coming in with, with those trays. I saw women going back and forth, back and forth, helping, serving in some way, shape, or form. If we want to have a heart like Christ, brothers, just watch these women in this church. Notice how much they truly care about everybody here. And then let's imitate them. Because I guarantee you that they are imitating Jesus Christ. And then lastly to our beloved sisters. I want to let you know that, that it's not just that we appreciate you. That is a vast understatement. But, but you are royalty in this church. You are not our doormats. You are not our inferiors. But you are warriors, co-warriors of ours in the army of God. And in so many ways, we, we admire you. We admire your, your hearts and your attitudes. And it's not so much that, that you need to change to become like us. But in so many ways, we need to change and become just like you. Yeah. No, you are not perfect. But I think that you are closer to perfection than we men are. I do believe that. And yet this is not a man's world. This most certainly is not the He-Man Woman Haters Club. This is the Church of Jesus Christ. This is the dream society of God on the face of this earth. And your voices, and your angelic being, and your presences, it matters just as much as us.